Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. I'm Jason Gotts, and you're listening to Think Again, a Big Think podcast. Do you have a body? I do, but I was mostly unaware of this fact until sometime in my mid-30s, when my life strategy of living like a bourbon-loving brain in a vat became increasingly untenable. Since then, I've come to understand something that might have been obvious to you all along. The body's not just a convenient support system for coming up with clever things to say, it's how we experience the world. It's much of what we mean by living. And for all its marvelous autonomy, it's also wonderfully, bafflingly complex. My guest today is the author Bill Bryson. In his new book, The Body, A Guide for Occupants, he has been kind enough to demystify it for us to the extent that that's possible and to help us revel in its mystery everywhere else. Bill is the beloved author of A Short History of Nearly Everything and A Walk in the Woods, and I'm delighted to have him here on my show. Welcome to Think Again, Bill. Thank you, Jason. It's great to be here with you. It's a delight and an honor. We've got an hour, so I figure we can pretty much cover the whole human body. (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) (laughs) I do not envy you the task of trying to cram the the entire human body and all of its complexity into 400 pages. It is a bit of a sprint, for sure. The real problem I had was, was, there were two. The The first one was keeping the brain from overwhelming the rest of the book. Because, I mean, just logic dictates that the brain should be a chapter because each organ in each system is a chapter. But, of course, the brain is so overwhelmingly, disproportionately important to our existence. You know, your kidneys and and heart and liver are not all that different from your dogs, but your brain certainly is. The brain is the thing that makes humans the interesting beings that we are. The way I got around that a little bit was by moving discussions of the brain into other sections of the book. I mean, like when you talk about the immune system. But even so, I cheated the brain. I mean, you have to. You can't. The brain should have gone on for thousands of pages. There have been a couple of conversations that I've had this year. One was with the primatologist Franz DeWall, and one was with Antonio Damasio, the, the biologist that have actually changed my sense of the importance of the body relative to the brain or the division between them. And I've started to really think of the whole thing as one integrated system to a much greater extent than I used to. That is the extraordinary thing about the body is that it is all integrated. You have 37.2 trillion cells, according to the best estimate. And each cell is a little independent entity. You know, it's a universe complete into itself. And yet it, it engages with and cooperates with all the other cells all around it, right. but in a, in a more or less random way. I mean, they're just they're just the, the components of the cell are programmed to respond to chemical signals, and they either receive information or pass information on, or you know, give you a little spurt of a hormone or do do various things. But it's all dependent on what bumps into them and what they bump into and that kind of thing. It all seems like just chaotic, and yet, I mean, you know, look at a human being. It's a completely <laughs> it's, a, it's a delightfully organized system. And you're right that you you know you cannot really break it apart into pieces. I mean, you have to for a book, just for convenience sake. But every bit of it is dependent on every bit of the rest of it. As you were talking, I was thinking of that speech from Hamlet, the, uh, you know, 
what a piece of work is a man, how noble in reason, etc. And then him going, and yet to me, what is this quintessence of dust? You know, we are, it's, we're both remarkable, marvelous, incredibly complex, and also totally subject to d decay and dispersal. So, so, and, and totally and completely mundane. That's the other, I mean, the, the, the other thing that I think is just the most remarkable fact about life is that, is that we live. I mean, <laughs> the, that you take all of these, you know, these components, these basic elements, oxygen, hydrogen, you know, phosphorus, all of these things, all the, these, these things that you, you know, the elements you find on the periodic table, and you put them all together, and sometimes they just make a pile of dirt, Right. And sometimes they make a star in a distant galaxy. And, you know, once in the universe, just once as far as we know, they make living things. And so, you know, why do these components here on Earth alone, as far as we know so far, how do they self-assemble into something as complex and and wondrous as we are? And the answer is, of course, nobody can really answer that question because it's just like way beyond what we can handle right. yet. But but just to, just to contemplate it is a fairly mind-blowing you know, it's one of those things like trying to imagine what infinity is like or eternity or something. It's just it's just one of those concepts that that is is quite extraordinary. Except that we are living it. I mean, this is this is our own existence we're talking about. The book is full of facts and anecdotes, really interesting stories, and kind of like detours into the history of biological science and medicine. But I'm also interested in the bigger ideas or themes behind these things. And one one theme is this theme of like what we know and what we don't know. Yeah, well, that wasn't something that I set off to explore. Yeah. It just it just happens. I mean, when you reflect upon it, it's not surprising that we that there's still so much we don't know about the body because it is so complex, and it actually gets more complex as time goes on. It, rather, the more we learn, the more we, we realize how much we don't know. A perfect demonstration of that was when we did the human genome. Before they did the human genome, they were pretty certain that that each gene had one specific task, that, you know, that if you had right. red hair, there would be a gene that gave you red hair. If you had blue eyes, there'd be a gene for that. If you were a good runner, there'd probably be a gene for that. You know, there, there was a kind of one-to-one -one relationship between, and they thought we had over 100,000 genes, and then they discovered we actually have far fewer genes than that, and that there isn't a single thing about you that doesn't in, involve a multiplicity of genes, often in patterns that, you know, are almost impossible to disentangle and understand. Actually, similar to how the thinking on the brain Involved as well with distinct, discrete areas were thought to handle various tasks, which is true to some extent, but in fact, vastly more plastic right. than, than people ever. I mean, I can't pretend to understand it at all. But one of the things that's extraordinary I, to me is extraordinary because I grew up in this world in which, you know, the brain was all compartmentalized. But now they're saying that that you know your memories of what it, your life was like when you were three, say, might have been you know in your kind of lower left hand quadrant once upon a time, and now that's up on the top right hand side or something but memories right. move around and um that's and pretty they're extraordinary also totally too. unreliable which is really they're, they're completely unreliable. <laughs> <laughs> you know first of all kind of a reconstruction as i think you mentioned in the book they're a reconstruction from various locations but then they're also in some cases a total fabrication i mean you you can be very very sincere about having a memory i mean it feels like a real memory <laughs> right. to you but in fact you you have partly fabricated it partly because you've been influenced by maybe stories you've heard in, within the family or you know home movies you've watched or old videos or things like that or just your imagination has taken over part of it we i mean we all do it and people who say that they remember you know being in the cradle or whatever when they have memories of being very very small there's just that just isn't so my 11 year old son remembers 
everything that happened to him from the moment he was born. <laughs> it's like, I have a memory and there was a patterned wallpaper and, you know, it's just, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> the ego constructing itself, I think. It's kind of wonderful in a way that we don't remember things perfectly. I mean, I don't know. I just find it very satisfying that the thought that, that a lot of what I remember, because when I look back at my own life, it's been a very happy life and my childhood was, was, was peaceful and happy and my parents were good people and all that. So it's mostly just happy memories and I'm happy to remember them the way I do. If it's not quite correct, well then fair enough. <laughs> right, right. This reminds me of something that you were saying. I think it was in, this is memory, right? It was either in an interview or it, was, or it might have been in the television show of Notes from a Small Island, is okay. that the title yeah, yeah, of that yeah, book, yeah. where you were talking about imperfections of the way that you travel. Both it's a great delight to you, like when, when you travel to have a plan, but then for things to go awry or to go off course, and also that it's enjoyable for the listener or, or the reader. And I think there's something similar in what you're saying about, about memory, that, you know, a life too controlled would be would be yeah, less interesting. Yeah. I mean, obviously, you don't want your memory to be too faulty because <laughs> right, that's, right. that's the we definition of dementia. <laughs> and, um, and, and clearly, I mean, we want to be able to hold on to memories. You don't want to lose memories altogether. All I'm saying is that when the details start to evade you or get changed, altered in some fairly harmless way, I think that's fine. What, what I find amazing is that, you know, I can still remember very clearly things like my childhood telephone number. I think most mm, of us can. Yes, Some, something I haven't needed for over half a century. And yet, you know, I can't remember where I put my car keys or, or you know, all, all kinds of very just common things that I, I really would be, it would be very helpful to be able to recall yeah. all the time. <clears throat> yeah. And there have been some studies about that stuff. I guess, you know, when you're a child, it's an exceedingly important thing to suddenly know your family telephone number. Yeah. I know, you know, I can not all that long ago recall my son's excitement at, at announcing to me that he knows mine. Yeah, milestone event in your life. Too. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's a big deal. Um, but so was, you know, I don't know, so was was getting out of diapers, but I don't actually recall the event. Right, know? right, right, right. So you don't That's actually true. have to, you don't have to it's hold on to these things. not every important event. Right, yeah. right. You're right. Yeah, it follows its own idiosyncratic logic, if we can call it that. You know, I want to stretch this analogy to the point of breaking. I mean, you've done a lot of you've done a lot of travel writing, and this is in a way a different kind of travel log, right? We're traveling through the body, beginning at the the top, mm -hmm. more or less. How is this similar, different from? other travel writing that you've well, done? Well, it's every book is that, perhaps every nonfiction book, but every, certainly every book I do, they tend to start from a position of profound ignorance. I don't know very much at all about this subject, or I certainly know no more than the average person. Okay. And then it becomes a, a journey of discovery to find out either whether it's about Australia as a country or or whether it's your body or whether it's, you know, how our houses are put together, just the history of the universe. And my whole idea, I mean, what I what I have in mind, I don't know how successfully I do it or not, but my idea is that is that this is, for me, very much a journey of discovery, of learning about, like with the body. Right. But I'm trying to take the reader along with me. I'm assuming that the reader is starting from a position of similar ignorance and that we are the reader is learning alongside me as i mean i'm sharing this information hoping that it resonates with the reader because it's 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 interesting and novel to them as well in this book it is a perfect i would say balance between 
that assumption that you're talking about, that the reader is as new to this information as you are, and also some of the most current, our most up-to-date understandings of these various systems. I'm glad you mentioned that, because I did try very hard to get as current as I possibly could. But of course, the day that the book is, the words go are printed onto paper, it just immediately starts to become obsolete. I right. Mean, just things, and I mean, with my book, A Short History, Nearly Everything, I wrote that in 2005, I think, and it's huge parts of it have been completely overtaken by developments in, in I mean, I, I listed, for instance, the number of exoplanets, you know, planet, right. Earth-like planets out that were known, and I don't remember what I said, but it was a few dozen, maybe, um, because that's what it was when I wrote the book, and now it's hundreds. So just things like that, things, you know, Obviously, the world moves on. Science makes new discoveries. Sure. And the, the, the great frustration with a printed book is that it's, you know, that edition stays the way it is forever. You, um, you can tweak them a little bit, and you, when they reprint, you can, you can make corrections, but you can't actually rewrite whole chapters. I mean, that becomes gotcha. a complete revision, and then that's another project altogether. Yeah, I had a conversation a long while back with um, Michael Palin about Edward. Yeah, he's he's lovely and also a travel writer, a travel speaker. And right around that time he had just been to North Korea and done that little yeah, yeah. documentary show that he did over there. And I think a similar question came up for me like because he he is also kind of he's interested in starting from a position of openness and in a sense ignorance, open ignorance about the thing, and then going and learning. But, you know, here he was going to North Korea and being kind of taken around on a tour. And I guess, you know, when you're dealing with something like the human body and science, you have a lot of people with a lot of dogs in that fight, you know, and yeah. how you kind of wear that as an author to say, okay, like, I'm going to go in not knowing much and taking the risk of you know, I obviously you're fact checking, but yeah, no, it's a, and there's, yeah. A, there's a completely fair point, which is that you know there's lots and lots of people who are vastly more qualified than I am to to write books like this, and and they have, they do, and they're and they are often wonderful books. There's a professor at Harvard, I'll be seeing him tomorrow. He's another great hero of mine, Daniel Lieberman, and he wrote a book that's the story of the human body, and it is. It is a thousand times more <laughs> authoritative than mine, okay. um, and and you know I, I I stand in awe of that of that book. I mean I, I say as much in my own book. But the only advantage I have over over Daniel Lieberman is my ignorance. I mean the fact that this is all new to me. So the one thing I have is a kind of infinite capacity to be amazed by what I'm learning. And, That's right. And and That's of course right. every human being I would argue every human being has a different perspective and different emphasis on what. His book is is very solemn, very solid, and very solemn. If you were going to say go into pre med course next year or do something really serious, I would say read that book, Don't take his book <laughs> away because you. you're going to need this information for the rest of your life. But if you're just generally interested in knowing a bit about the human body and kind of the marvels and the magic of the human body, I think my book might be more down your down your street because that's sure. what my book is about. Is 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 really how amazing it is, how, how marvelous it is. And I think there's a place in the world for both kinds of books. No, I totally agree. And I mean, this position and the stance that you take and your wonder is an invitation in 
that will invite readers mm -hmm. in who would be daunted and left out. But it is a, it, it is a, a, a danger. I mean, the one risk that I have is by not being an authority on any of this stuff, there's there's always the great danger that I will just, I will make some colossal error. <laughs> right, 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 right. And, and I live, you know, and I was, you know, I'm always terrified. So of that, I guess that's what I'm wondering. Does that keep you up at night or have you, yeah, have you made peace with absolutely. that? Absolutely, no. Okay. I, I, I really, really worry about that a lot, all the time. And, um, and, 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 I, and, and I actually want to interrupt and I want to say that like uh, you know to be vulnerable myself here and say that on this show I speak to people who are experts in a wide range of fields many of whom I've just read whatever their most recent book is I've got no idea whatsoever about economics or well you know I know a little bit but mm -hmm. I'm speaking as a fellow traveler <laughs> in the realms of esoterica that are not my area of expertise and where I'm trying to just be open to the unknown. Yeah, and and uh, I mean, there's there's two two aspects. Mine. One is I don't explain the science a lot. I mean, I do really leave that to the Daniel Lieberman. I'm sure. talking more about the culture and the history. The my 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 stuff is a lot more anecdotal. There is a difference between me and a and a, and a regular scientist. I think in that a scientist. When they read about a new discovery or something, they want to know about the science. They want to know, you know, so tell me, explain how does them, it work? Yeah, explain them the molecular mechanics that are going on here. And, so, and I'm I'm generally pretty bored with that kind of thing. <laughs> I want to know really about who who did this and why did this guy in Idaho do it and not somebody at you know Harvard or Yale? What, what or, or you know why did this happen in? Finland, or you know, what's the story here? Right. And then you discover that they, the, I don't know that the person did it in Finland, but they have a Japanese name or something. That, so that's when I start to get interested. All of these things that, that I think most scientists would think of as fairly irrelevant are the things that make my ears perk up. <laughs> and there are many wonderful and strange stories in your your book that don't follow the arc we might expect. It's not like oh, this wonderful discovery was made, and then the world danced around in a circle and rejoiced. <laughs> like quite often. And the discoverer, the scientist is ignored. The science is ignored for a generation. Uh, the whole team ends up at war with each other. Yeah, yeah. No, there's, there's, there's all these wonderful examples of that. And they do tend to get glossed over in textbooks and in more serious books. And I, every time I come across these things, I, I always think, why didn't they teach me this stuff in school? The discovery of insulin. There were three or four guys that were involved. But one of them, Frederick Banting, this was all happening in Toronto. And Frederick Banting was just a physician, just a general practitioner. Mm. And he had this idea that was considered harebrained for how you might distill um, insulin. They didn't even know what it was, what insulin was. I mean, they didn't even, hadn't even called it that yet. But how you might distill insulin out of pancreas, dog pancreases and use that injected into humans and then um, cure diabetes, which at the time was just terrible, dreadful disease. Type 1 diabetes was a massive killer, particularly of children. And they, and they not, not only killed them, but they died wretchedly. It was a horrible, horrible disease. And his idea was, was for, for complicated technical reasons, his idea was really just considered completely crackpot. Right. And yet it turned out he was right. And because they were so desperate to come up with some kind of a cure, a professor at the um, University of Toronto gave him some lab space and said, okay, go ahead and try it. And they gave him some dogs to experiment on. And it turned out that it was right. But he had no idea what he was doing. He was just sort of tying off pancreases <laughs> and hoping and, and sort of wringing insulin out of, out of dog pancreases. And it worked, and it and it was a miracle drug. I mean, they took you could take a child who was on the brink of death, starving away, just you know a bag of bones, and and inject them with this insulin, and they were almost fully restored to normal life with, with you know almost overnight. It was a it was a miracle drug. It was one of the greatest medical inventions of all time, and but discovered in the sort of kookiest possible kooky way. But, way. But, but okay. the, 
And then there were other people in the lab that were involved <laughs> in it. There was another guy that named Cudlip who refined the production methods uh, because, of course, it's not, not enough just to come up with a new drug. You have to figure out some way of producing it at scale. Right. Uh, and Cudlip came up with this. And then the, the head of the lab was a guy named McLeod who was from Scotland. And during the whole period that all of the experiments were going on and that Banting was coming up with his solution, McLeod was in Scotland. He went off for like six weeks or eight weeks every year on, to his native country to have a summer vacation. So he wasn't there at all. And he was, got to share the Nobel Prize when the Nobel Prize right. was awarded because it was his lab. There was a lot of he, that too, people he, taking yeah. credit. So for, all of these guys, these four guys, just ended up hating each other. I mean, and there were times when they actually came to blows where, where um, Banting had to be pulled off one, one <laughs> cudlip. And so it's just kind of this most delightfully zany story. But what's great about it is there's such a happy happy outcome. But if you read a textbook or even just a sort of, you know, college basic biology, human biology book, they just gloss over that. And I think, no, that's the story. That's surely that's the story. Yeah, it's just, it's actually, it's weird that we gloss over it, but I guess we like our stories, you know, heroic. Well, as I say, scientists go for the science. <laughs> they, they just, they tend to focus on the science. Right. They get excited by the insulin, whereas I get excited by the punch-ups, you know, by the guys at fisticuffs. I mean, genuinely, what were some of the most astonishing discoveries or like one or two of the things that you encountered that just that oh, yeah. actually blew your there, mind? There, there were certain certain facts that it just that, that were so unbelievable that I, I really had to just check them like over and over just to me. One was the, the idea that we have so much DNA in our bodies because you have, you have two meters of it in every cell in your body. Right. That's every, crazy. Yeah. And, and you've got so many cells. Possible? If you took all the DNA in your body and made it into a single fine strand, it would stretch 10 billion miles to be on Pluto. There's enough, you know, there's enough of you to form a strand that would, would stretch to be on Pluto. Now, I thought, come on, that can't be true. That just can't be true. That's just, I could see that, you know, maybe there'd be enough of me to stretch to Chicago or right. something, but, but, you know, not to Pluto, for, you know. And, <laughs> and so I checked and checked, and it is, I mean, it's true. That if, you do the, if you do the calculations, it turns out that that's how much, you know, you've got 10 billion miles of, of wow. DNA in you, which is just, you know, a reflection of just how amazingly complex we are and how much there is packed into us. But, but if you take all, all, many, many other just everyday parts of you, if you took all of your blood vessels and capillaries and everything, and again, put them and made a single strand out of them, that would stretch around the earth two and a half times at the equator. I mean, each human being is, a, is an amazing piece of work. Even the sort of narrative level description you give of the immune system, I, I became at some point, I was like, okay, I need to read like five more books to even begin to understand. Yeah, I mean, the immunology system is, uh, I had a great help from a, a professor, a really nice guy named Daniel Davis at the University of Manchester in England. He was immensely patient with me. But the immune system is probably the most complicated part of the human body and, and one of the parts that is the least understood and, and the slowest to which we've gained any understanding at all. Uh, I mean, it's really it's the immune system as a, as, a, as a concept is really quite a modern development. And it's not in any one place. It's scattered all around your body. It's not a... Right. Complex interaction of signals and hormones and... Yeah. And, but, but of course, you know, I mean... There's a lot of things in the in the universe that want to kill you or can hurt you, um, from sunlight to you know from, to bacteria that you breathe in or swallow, and your body has to protect you from all these things as best it can. Um, I mean, the very fact that we sometimes get sick and that we ultimately die is testament to the fact that you don't have an infinite ability to to protect yourself. But 
But another amazing fact I came across that I'd never heard of was that was that you know we all it's just it's estimated that we all get cancer several times a week, a couple of thousand times a year, right. and your immune system identifies these proliferating cells before they can grow into a tumor and cause any any real damage, and it just you know devours them and excretes them and washes them away before they can do any damage. So if you get cancer in the conventional sense that you have to go in and have you know chemotherapy or, or something, you've been really really unlucky. But it's not the first time your body's had it. Your body's had it thousands of times. It's just this is one occasion when somehow it got past the defense. Defenses. That's the bit that I think is hard to wrap our minds around is really, I mean, I don't know if gratitude's the right word, but the debt of gratitude that we owe to the immune system, the amount of work that it's doing, the astonishing likelihood that we should die at every minute, <laughs> yeah. every second. Yeah. Well, and you know, but and we don't. You know. Well, you know, you can die in, in moments. I mean, you know, just if the ceiling collapsed, we'd be dead in an instant. A human being is a very frail thing. And we're always, you know, just really just, a, you know, a collision away from instant death. So life is, is pretty precious and pretty yeah. remarkable. And one of the th- themes that I bang on about in the book is that we shouldn't take it for granted because it's bounded, as I say, by two very long eternities. And you, you know, we only get to exist for this really quite short period. Uh, and really, we ought to revel in in that and enjoy it and be grateful for it. That was the next theme that I was going to touch on. The next, I would say, big idea in the book is basically how poorly we tend to take care of our bodies. No, no, we do. And I mean, I'm <laughs> sitting here as, you know, a, a grotesque demonstration of that right now. And I mean, we all do because, you know, it's so hard. It, I mean, one of the other th- remarkable things about the body, I think, is just how efficient it is. So I say in the book that, you know, your brain only only requires 400 calories of energy a day to run. Mm. I mean, this is the most magnificent machine in the universe, probably. And it runs on 400 calories a day, which is about what you get from a blueberry muffin. Right. Try running your laptop for 24 hours on a blueberry muffin and see how far you get. And every organ in your body really runs on very, very low inputs of energy. I mean, it requires, the human body requires very little in the way of input. And yet food is so damn tasty that (laughs) that we all take in more. The amount that you actually need to survive and to survive healthily is very, very much less than almost all of us consume. Your body lets you get away with it for a long, long time. I mean, you can be overweight for a long, long time and not have any real consequences. But eventually, you you know, you're bound to pay a price for it, either in diminished health or early death. But the fact is that because you don't have a sort of one-to-one relationship between consumption and price to pay. Right. You know, because it's all deferred to the We're to very bad future. at understanding causality when it's not exactly, immediate. Exactly, <laughs> exactly. And so we all, we almost all tend to eat too much and not look after ourselves and to exercise far too little. Unraveling why that is is almost as complex as understanding the immune system. I mean, on the one hand, you have marketing and you have very large food companies that have a vested interest in selling you products and lots of sugar and so forth and so on. But modern life, and we've been calling, we've been talking about this since, you know, probably the dawn of time and saying modern life is stressful, but modern life is stressful and people stress eat carbs, you know, they drink too much because of stress. It's absolutely true. I mean, another, I thought, remarkable thing was these studies that they've done and how, you know, what do we do about this? How do we, and, and one of the simplest and most effective things you could do to improve your health, or improve your prospects is just get up and move around. Mm. The, um, as, as one of the people I quote in the book says, you can't undo sitting. If you do what most of us do, which is, you know, uh, however active you are by day, even if you go to the gym and everything, if you could then go home and sit 
sit in front of your television for three or four hours straight, which is what most of us do in the evening, all the exercise may not compensate for that. They think that the sitting is so bad for you that the exercise will not offset it. You That's know? very disturbing. It's I very disturbing. I don't wish to stand and move we, we about all the can prove that, but, they, <laughs> but there, seems to be, there seems to be a correlation between how much people sit, whether they're fit and healthy or not and what kind of health outcomes they have. So if I'm going to watch TV, I must run on a treadmill? <laughs> no, but what they say <laughs> is just get up and, and make a point to get up and move around during the commercials, mm -hmm. which, of course, are often enough to keep you pretty active. Right. But, but yeah, I mean, instead of just sitting there for three hours of stretch, or even just, you know, at work, instead of just sitting at your desk for, for hours of stretch, get, you're supposed to just get up and move around. And apparently that has the most wonderful beneficial effects. One of the things I thought was very interesting is that people who tend to be lean is often it's because they just they move around a whole lot more. Mm. You know, they may spend an hour and a half a day more on their feet and in motion moving around. And and obviously if you are lean you tend to get up and bounce around a bit more anyway. So it tends to be a, a virtuous circle that's self-reinforcing. I suppose some there's also that thing of metabolism and probably some people who are wired there's, to move there's, more there's than no others. Doubt, no doubt. Yeah. I'm sure there is that. Although that's it, that becomes a very controversial area. And I mean, I talked to a, a hormone expert who said it was absolutely fat is absolutely a question of, of metabolism. Mm. But but he was quite rotund. And I just thought, <laughs> <laughs> I just thought, I'm not sure I'm going to you know go with you all the way on this, because I think exercise has got to come in there somewhere too you know you can't just say that it's because your body wants to hang on to fat more than sure others there's there's got to be lifestyle has got to be a component surely yeah i mean there seem to be some things that we've arrived at consensus on as far as nu nutrition and health and then a lot of others where there's just a lot of uncertainty and controversy. that was that was the hardest chapter of the book to write was all about nutrition and health and i mean i don't give any advice this is not a self-help book this is i'm really just trying to understand what what do the authorities say it's, this isn't me saying right. here's what you should eat or how you should behave i'm just i'm just exploring what the authorities say. And there is so much contradiction when it comes to what you should put in your mouth and swallow. Mm. I mean, there's just so much, whether it's how much salt is bad for you or whether it's bad at all, or you know how much sugar you can tolerate. And the self-evident position is just to do everything in moderation, You know, not to worry about it too much. I did talk to a nutrition expert at, at uh, Stanford who seemed very reasonable about it, a, a very nice man named Gardner. And he just said, essentially, just use your common sense. You know, yeah. I mean, you shouldn't be afraid to have a piece of carrot cake or cheesecake or whatever. Whatever. You shouldn't feel guilty about it. Just don't eat eight slices. Of, you know, <laughs> right, right. You know, I mean, you you know what's the, you know what you're doing. What and, gluttony is? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, so you know, if if you if you want to have a cheeseburger, for goodness sake, have a cheeseburger. But just don't just eat nothing else but cheeseburgers. So you so just ex, you know, and don't have too much sugar. Don't have too much salt. Don't have too much of anything. You know, just just be sensible about. It. Try not to eat too much. The best advice for a healthy life, it seems, is is to always be a little bit hungry. I mean, mm. li live a life in which you're never quite full. Uh, and those are the people who seem to live the longest. And the ceiling might fall on you anyway, and, and your <laughs> exactly. heart might give out, but 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 the probability might be lower, yeah, yeah, at well, least well, of the heart. The, the, the one absolute certainty is that something will get you in the end. Yeah. And I, I mean, I take, a, I think, an optimistic line on it, because the World Health Organization lists 8,000 different ways a human can die. I don't know how they... 8,000. I don't know how they came <laughs> with that, but they, they have a, a listing of 8,000 different ways.
was, and as, as I point out in the book, you know, you escape every one of them but one. So that's Ooh. pretty good, you know. You've, you, right. you, you, and I mean, really think about all the times in your life that you've nearly had it, you know, when you stepped, almost stepped off a curb in front of a bus or something, and you just step back at the last second. We've all had those experiences where you just go, whoa, like almost, you know, right, right, when you're driving right. and you almost have a bad yeah. accident or something. And most of the time we escape all this stuff. And, and your body is doing this for you, even though you're not aware of it, as I say, with the immune system is there's probably terrible things going on in you right now. The immune system is saying, you know, relax, I've got it. I've got this one covered. And even in our kind of reflexive, you know, the, the other systems that are helping us reflexively react to the world and jump out of the way of that bus. Yeah. Well, and then that brings us to something I thought was just, again, a mind-blowing thing, which is the idea that anything you perceive in the world, you know, the, the photons have to strike your eyes and then the information has to travel to your brain and your brain has to uh, interpret it and decide what it is. So, you know, if if I suddenly threw a ball at your face, <laughs> um, you know, your brain's got to figure out what's going on. It's got to receive the actual visual information, then interpret it and everything. And if you did all that in absolute real time, our reflexes would be would be poor, would be a little bit too slow. We, we would be much more at risk right. of being hurt. So what the brain does, and I think this is just the most extraordinary thing, is that it doesn't tell you what the world is like right now. It tells you what it thinks the world is going to be like a fifth of the second from now. But essentially what it means is we never live in the present. We are always... We're always just a quarter of a second in the future. The world we perceive, as the brain is telling us, it'll be a quarter of a second from now. And I just think that's somehow the most thrilling thought that we're not in in the moment. <laughs> we're we're very you know factually ahead of of now. It can be very beneficial for us, and it can get us into all kinds of trouble too. <laughs> <laughs> Assuming what's what's what that we know what's about to happen. I, I was thinking of a conversation with um, Barbara Tversky, um, who's a cognitive psychologist who studies motion in the brain and she was talking about how even very little babies they can tell from the person's eyes whether they're going to like if they're holding a ball they can tell are they going to throw it are they going to release it are they going to they make as you say all kinds of predictions just from like subtle eye movements yeah, yeah, or, yeah, I, yeah, yeah. I mean humans figure things out really quickly and I, I watched I've got a whole bunch of grandchildren and I'm and I, you know, I not only adore them, but I'm fascinated by them. I really, and I, and I've, I've been watching them all grow. And and it is, you can watch, you can see that exactly that sort of thing going on. How they figure things out, you know, even when they're quite small, uh, and just when they're trying to work out how to crawl or something, mm -hmm. and then all the processes, you can kind of see the the wheels turning in their heads <laughs> as they're trying to figure out these things. And it's it's just it's quite delightful because they're, they're obviously their brains are very fairly primitive and fairly sim simplistic and yet they're, they're still able to work out things and they're watching all the time um, I have a, a two year old who's, who's you, you know really learning to speak now in a proper grammatical way and how they work all that out is you know how they work out um, irregular verbs and things right. it's really quite it's magical it's just wonderful how they do it it takes them a, quite a long time you it's know. delightful and it's and it's and what's what's especially interesting I guess is the I mean, I have a, I have one son. That's a very limited experience of this. But you know, the fact of two things simultaneously: the 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 conscious intention and attempts to do things, and the unconscious kind of systemic, yeah. you know, processes that are doing them for and to the child. And then, but and then also <laughs> the, the limitations because their brain is still forming and it hasn't that that things that you know. 
would, would seem so obvious to us that they just can't quite get the hang of. Right. You know? I mean, you know, you know the whole thing with kind of peekaboo and stuff where you can fool babies so easily because right. they just can't quite. You know, they have the they have really simple interpretations of things, and I, I just love that too. You know, grown-ups, we feel that we've got everything figured out, but there's something to be said too for. I mean, going back to something we said in the beginning and something I think you say in the beginning of this book where you say, I kind of hope that we never figure all of it out. Some of the best of what we are, I think, as humans is in those gaps of knowledge. It would be terrible, I, I think, to live in an age in which they could, in which we did understand everything, and then they could correct everything. I mean, obviously, it would be wonderful if they could reach into cells now and stop people from getting cystic fibrosis or sure. having horrible tragedy. Yeah, yeah, exactly. That would be that'd be wonderful. But it would also mean that they could probably reach into cells and, you know, do things like, would you like your kid to be a little taller or faster or smarter or, yeah. you know, or other things. You know, and you could say, can, please, can I have a blonde child or, <laughs> right know, whatever it's not just terrifying because what we could do with it but but also just the very fact that we understand everything if we understood everything in that kind of detail it would take the mystery out of a lot of the mystery out of life and i think i think it's wonderful that we don't understand exactly how memories work and we don't really know what consciousness is that so much is still unknown even ba very basic things i mean nobody knows why we yawn for instance there's all these right theories right, right. and or what and, eyelashes exactly are exactly, for or, or tears or, or, yeah. or why we have chins you know because right. we're the only um we're the only apes that have chins and and we we evolved them for no reason that anybody knows but but you know we like a good chin i mean you, <laughs> but it's part of what attracts you to another person if you i mean if you fall down and your hands don't do the job at least they they protect the rest of your face <laughs> I, I suppose you could look at it like that but that's <laughs> <laughs> I don't think that's, I don't know a, if that's a, a hypothesis that will get very far in scientific no? circles, okay. but yes. Right. But it's it's actually about as good an explanation as anybody else has come up with. And again, I think that there's something, for me, there's something rather marvelous in, in the body being a, something of a mystery. I think you're saying something actually very important. One of the things that really surprised me in the book, and I, I sort of should have known this before, and maybe I somewhere did, but I, 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 I guess I didn't know it as well as I now do, how late it was in history that medicine was able to do anything at all <laughs> other than kill people. And we need to be humble. <laughs> we need that humility. We benefit, I mean, in all of our relationships and all of the way that we deal ge geopolitically and everything from a measure of humility about our own limitations. Mm -hmm. So, I mean, there's a very real danger in, in the idea of thinking that we know everything. I think we tend to forget that we're, you know, as, as civilizations go, I mean, we're pretty young. I mean, one day, you know, one day this civilization won't be 10,000 years old, it'll be 100,000 years old. And they'll look back on us as being kind of back there with the Neanderthals and cavemen and, and stuff. And we will we'll be back closer to them than, than you know. Unless, so, God forbid, you know, a, a virus or something has reduced them to scrabbling course. about in the bushes or <laughs> which something. Is, but, which is always possible. <laughs> or more likely to be some self-inflicted catastrophe. Or that. But, but, um, but, but let's just say that the progress follows a, you know, a normal chain and far in the future we will humans will understand so much more and they'll look back on us and they'll think that so much about what we did was we you know they'll realize that we were at the very beginning was we never think in those terms we don't think you know we're pretty a young civilization we still got so much more to learn we kind of think we're really you know we're quite we're, sophisticated yeah, yeah. Um, but if you just look at things like cancer treatments you know you, you don't have to look cast your mind very far into the future to imagine that they're going to look 
uh, the collateral damage and the suffering that cancer treatments cause. I mean, they may cure the cancer, but they also can cause a lot of serious damage. But also they make people you know, unbelievably miserable when they go through the having chemotherapy or radiation therapy. And presumably 100 years from now or 70 years from now or some time in the future, yeah, we'll look barbaric just, or whatever. Yeah, I mean, they'll just wave some kind of um, you know, pulsating wand over you and, <laughs> and the cancer will go away. I mean, I'm sure there will be, it'll be you know, painless and, and quick and it'll make our procedures today look, look pretty basic and primitive. So yes, I mean, I think we, we have every reason to be humble about where we are with our state of knowledge. And speaking of hubris, this is actually a perfect segue into what is something of a non sequitur, which is the second part of the show, where I'm going to play us a clip from a conversation that I had last week with Christopher Wiley, who is the whistleblower of Cambridge Analytica, oh, wow, okay. which actually taught us a lot that Cambridge Analytica experience taught us a lot, I think, about our own hubris and ignorance when it comes to the scale of the internet and social media. We have literally entrusted our civil discourse, or frankly, right now, uncivil discourse, to a private company who monetizes it. Right. Do we really want Facebook to be in charge of like so much of our political discourse, the, the foundations of our American democracy? There's a lack of transparency because Facebook feels like one thing, but it is what, something What it's allowed else. to different you know actors and candidates to do is when you think of the, the old notion of public discourse in, in the town square, right? like the public forum, right? You're right. like in a town and there's like a soapbox and it's like, all right, it's like, you know, <laughs> John Adams turn to go and stand on the soapbox and talk about whatever, right? And But in that, there's some really important things that are happening, right? You've got people standing there and they're hearing the same thing. They all know that others are hearing the same thing. Right. And in that audience, you might have an opposing candidate. You might have a journalist. And if that candidate lies, the opposing candidate can say that's not true or there's more to that story. A journalist can write about it. The audience can talk about it amongst themselves. They know what's happening. But what Facebook and other platforms have allowed to happen. I got to interject and say also in the town square, everybody knows each other. They see each other at the dance. Yeah, they have to, they, they kind of have to, at the end of the day, you know, live neighbors together. Yeah, with each exactly. Other. But what Facebook has allowed to happen is if I'm standing there as the candidate and you're listening, I can now become invisible. In fact, this town square no longer, it's no longer obvious that I'm here because I'm a ghost and I can go invisibly and whisper into everybody's ear. And the people going about their business in this town square don't realize that other people are being talked to. And actually, as this sort of phantom specter, I can appear like a newspaper. I can appear like an expert. I can appear like your friend. I can appear like a funny meme. I can appear right. like anything I want. And you don't know what I am. And in that circumstance where different people can see and hear different things and they don't even know exactly who or what or why it is that they're seeing that, that breaks down public discourse because this is now happening in private. It's the privatization of public discourse right. for profit. The whole world we're living in now because of the internet just confuses me. <laughs> I mean, in some ways it's just, it's so wonderful. I mean, I can only talk about it really in a very narrow way, but how it affects me personally. I often feel that I, I'm really not making the most of it. But but one of the things where I think the internet is fantastic is just with like fact checking. Sure. I just love that, that, that I can sit at home at my desk in Hampshire, England, or I can be in an airport lounge in, you know, 
JFK in New York or anywhere in the world. And if I want to know, you know, um, about Cambridge Analytica, I can just Google it and here comes up all the information I need right. to know. Or who is um, this Christopher Wiley? Wiley Christopher yeah. Wiley. Uh, I can get a picture of him. I can. I, uh, yeah, but, even but, the fact that Wikipedia works, which seems totally yeah, no, utterly that's, impossible. I think that's the, the, the way we have access to information is clearly fantastic. But the, the devastation that the internet has caused to my principal channels of information has been very alarming to me because I'm really still fundamentally a 20th century person. And mm. and I, I I could just about handle a newspaper no longer in, in newsprint form, but <laughs> rather online. But but I, I well, I don't even know I can do that. I mean, I really, I really long for the day when the newspaper landed on my doormat, and that was how I got my information every day. I know that that uh, there was a huge price to be paid in currency, because you're getting news that was at least 12 or 14 hours old, if not more. Sure. And sometimes that was a frustration if you knew there was a, a, a big ongoing story. But there was also something, I mean, I've been reading, I, I stayed in a hotel in Philadelphia last night where they they put three three different newspapers out on the counter every morning. And it was for some, and I took them on. It was a feast for me to <laughs> sit down and read the Enquirer and the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal. And, and just having those papers to look at. And I and I felt that I was getting so much more from them that, that I would never have got if, if I'd sat down and read the Wall Street Journal online. Because the, because the, information is kind of limited and contained and yeah and i always feel with the internet is what i'm seeing is what it wants me to see or what it will let me see right. because i'm not very good at finding my way around it and i find i'm suspicious of that and and i don't like it i don't i, I don't like the business of the the internet business of you know be, be, because you're interested in this you're also going to be interested in this right. and that kind of i don't like this Having sense your of reality being, shaped in that yeah way. being manipulated all the time and even even when i look at something like like say the guardian website um which is you know it's a very user-friendly website and i think it's a good newspaper and you know it's a it's that kind of thing is, as far as I can tell, as good as it can get. I mean, in terms of user friendliness and utility and all of that, I still just don't feel anything like as comfortable delving there as, as I would if you gave me a physical newspaper and I could just look at the pages. Because, you know, if I open the newspaper to page six, I will see everything that's on page six. I, my right. eye will cast go over the whole page. I may not read very much of it, but at least I'll know what's there and I'll be able to make a selection and I turn to page seven. And I feel that I go from you know the beginning to the end and I've looked at everything there is. With an online newspaper, you don't know where the beginning and end, or you, don't, well, you certainly don't know where the end is, you know what the, where it That's starts. Right. And That's you just don't know where to, I don't know, I just feel, I feel lost. Uh, and sometimes I have wonderful moments and I you know, download long think pieces and read them later and, and I think that's marvelous. But but in terms of just feeling like I'm comfortably at home there and finding my way through it, I I, I feel, feel lost. On the and I also feel it, that yeah. it's that, that this this free world of internet, just everything given to you is destroying the paid for world that I grew up in. And I think I find that very alarming too. Well, and, and the, fl the other, the, the back end of that is that it's not actually free because what's happening is that their currency is your data. So yeah. the thing, the places you go, you know, it, it looks like you're being given a free service, but in fact, 
you're selling, you're giving your data away for nothing, which is then sold at an extraordinary premium in order to curate your reality and give you what they want to give you. Yeah, exactly. And I, I just find that, I find that sad. I mean, I just find that, I, 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 and I, I, never, I never know, I really never know whether, how much this is just me being, getting old and not being as flexible as I can, because my kids are completely happy in that world. And how much of it is, because I'm more experienced than they are, that I, you know, I know an alternative world that I think they don't, they're not familiar. I understand that. Yeah, I try to have these conversations with my son about technology. I mean, right now he's very immersed in sort of online video games and he's got friends in Australia. And, you know, there is a there is a kind of community that, you know, he's talking to people while at the same time playing a game with them. And, yeah. and then there's a part of me, which I'm never entirely sure is this just like me getting old, but a part of me that a very big part of me that wants to that is a kind of classical romantic and wants to say, well, you know, Surely a single walk in the woods to <laughs> grab your title is worth more than hundreds of hours of curated re digital re reality. Another possible example is is libraries. You know, to me, there is no better way to research a book than just by wandering, getting in your car, driving to a library, getting out, going into a, biz a, a building, physically being surrounded by books and by physical books and and. You know, because you go and look for one book, and then and then you see three more beside it that you didn't know about or hadn't, and you're just stumbling all the time. And for me, right. that's that's the the most pleasurable way to spend my day when I'm I'm working uh, to do the research like that. And there's something to me. There's something wonderful about the physicality of a book and taking an armload of them to a desk and sitting down and going through them. And I, I don't know how much that's just because that's the world I grew <laughs> right, up in. Right, and right, right. I'm acquainted with it and I'm comfortable there. But I also think there is something for me anyway. I could never make those kinds of discoveries on the internet. Just everything I learned by wandering around my parents' library and pulling down the joy of sex when I was too young to read it or whatever you know i mean it's uh there's a lot of education and you know and, and discovery there in the yeah, yeah, yeah. and book. I, and I'm, I'm sure this is true of the yeah, internet yes, as well, of but because it's such an alien landscape right. to me i have never as far as i know i have never found anything that was really valuable to me on the internet that i wasn't looking for in the first place that i hadn't actually right. asked for. well but i think what is true i mean i think without a doubt you know whatever generation you're in your reality is more curated online than it is in, say, a library. Yeah, yeah. And for reasons that you don't necessarily understand at all. Which sounds kind of creepy. S sinister, but yeah. true. <laughs> <laughs> um, but I, I think that brings us to, to the end of this delightful conversation. Oh, really? I was having such a good time. I, I don't I, want it to stop. I you? was too. But thank you so much for, for coming on Think Again, Bill Bryson. Thank you very much, Jason. I've had a wonderful time. I'm honored to have been here with you. And Bill's new book is The Body, A Guide for Occupants. The body gets a bad rap for its appetites and because we've spent most of Western history trying to elevate ourselves above its coarse concerns. But ironically, I think that has cut us off from most of the information that we need to care for ourselves and for one another, the foundations of any vision worth aspiring to. I'd love to hear your thoughts on this or anything else by email through my website, jasongotts.com. That's J-A-S-O-N-G-O-T-S dot com. And I'll be back next week with something very, very different indeed. I hope you can join me.